Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes. On this episode, we continue our series of highlights from this year's festival, with two very different authors who are united in emphasising the importance of promoting healthy relationships between us. The ways in which we relate to the world and to the people in our community has been drawn into stark relief this year, and so best-selling YA author Nicola Yoon and the pioneering campaigner and author Alistair McIntosh take very different approaches to exploring the best ways we can relate to our environment, to our community and to ourselves. We begin with Nicola Yoon. She grew up in Jamaica and Brooklyn and now lives in Los Angeles. The best-selling author of Everything Everything and The Sun is Also a Star, Nicola is a National Book Award finalist, a Michael L. Prince Honour book recipient and a Coretta Scott King New Talent Award winner. Both of her novels have been made into major motion pictures. She speaks here to our very own Andy Stewart. First thing that I would really, really love to talk about is a sentence that I found on your website rather than in your book. I was um, and always will be a late bloomer. I've always been a late bloomer. It just takes me longer to process things. Like things that everyone else figures out <laughs> um, at 12, it takes me until like 18. Um, so that's just my nature. When you're a young person, you think that your life has to be set a certain way by a certain age. And that if you haven't achieved those things that you think that you want, then you have somehow failed. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't think that's true. I think that there's so much to learn that maybe you're, you're not even sure of what you want, actually. The thing for me with writing was I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until much later. I was an electrical engineering major in college. And my final year, I had to take a writing class. You have to take something outside of your major. And I thought, oh, I'll take writing because it'll be easy compared to my electrical engineering classes. And I was completely obnoxious because that's not true. The writing class was absolutely the hardest class I ever took. And then that's when I realized that this was the thing that I wanted to do. So I thought, oh, math, computer science, that's the whole world I'm going to be in. Um, You know, I turned down a job to work for JPL, which is NASA, right? So I thought that's what I wanted. And then I got to writing and I was like, oh, I don't actually want to be a rocket scientist. I want to write books. Um, and so then that sent me to graduate school. And then you know, I grew up fairly poor in Brooklyn and in Jamaica. And after I graduated, I, I didn't want to be unstable. And I thought, there's no way I can make a living as a writer. So I'm going to do like these computer science and uh, financial jobs. I think the only thing that didn't change for me is I still have this dream of writing. I have arbitrary deadlines and arbitrary sort of goals but there's one thread which was that I kept open and I just kept going so it didn't matter that it took me until 43 it mattered that I got there in the end and I think that's something that you have to know is that life and circumstances get in the way sometimes but sometimes they're showing you the way right and you have to be open to that and you know you'll get there if you want to get there if you sort of just stay with it being like a writer at 30 it doesn't matter, right? You have more, if you're at 40 and you're writing your first book, then you have an extra 10 years of life experience. So try to think of it that way. So how do I write for young adults? I have a really good memory of what it was like to be sort of young and insecure and questioning things. You know, the part of me that really connects with kids is the questioning part. The really wonderful thing about young adults is that they're 
quite philosophical, actually, right? I mean, just by nature of being 16 or 17, you're questioning the world. And you're questioning your place in it and who you want to be and what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to be a good friend, partner. And so you're, you're naturally asking the big questions. And I am still like that. I'm really quite philosophical. Like I am the person at the party saying, but what does it really mean whilst holding like the glass of tequila? Like, so I'm sort of obnoxious, but that's how I am. And I think young people are that way naturally. They're always asking. And so I think it's really just a sort of good fit for me because I love being in that conversation with someone saying, well, what about thinking about the world like this? And maybe you could think of it like this. I like being, it's such a privilege to be part of that conversation with kids, just sort of helping them define who they are and who they want to be in the world. So we're now five years on, I think, from the book being published. When did you start kind of coming up with these ideas and thinking about the book? Right, so for Everything Everything, it took me three years to write it. Um, And then publishing takes forever for anything to happen. So the book was done a year and a half before it was actually out. So I started writing it when my daughter was three months or four months old. And I had a full-time job at the time. And it was, you know, I worked for Wall Street companies. And so it was a very stressful job. So I wrote the book from 4 to 6 a.m. over the course of three years, right? So I would get up at 4, 3.50, like get settled, get some coffee, (laughs) settle in, write for two hours and then start to get ready for the rest of the day, having, um, you know, being a mom for half an hour and then sort of getting out the door. That's what I did to get it done because that was the only way to, you know, pursue the big dream. You said that it was quite a long process getting the book published. How did you find that? How did it come about? You know, I always say that, you know, any sort of success is a combination of hard work, right, and luck, which is sort of trite. But the luck part, I think, gets short shrift. You can write the best book in the world and not ever make money from it and not be able to quit your job. Um, So I've been quite lucky. The way it came about is a a friend of mine who I met in graduate school introduced me to her agent. Her agent said, send me what you have. Send me anything you've got. Um, And I sent her, you know, the stuff I've been writing for the last 10 or 15 years. And then I had started working on this idea because of my daughter, who was four months old. You know how babies are so fragile and you have to take care of them. And as a mom, I was such a warrior when she was so small. Like I was the mom that thought all the bad things were going to happen. Like she was eating dirt and she's going to crawl out of my house and all everything bad. And I wondered what life would be like for a mom who had to take care of maybe like a 17-year-old the way you take care of an infant, you know, Maybe what if you get locked in this stage forever? And then I started thinking, well, what if you were 17 and actually you were the one that was sort of trapped in your house and trapped by an illness or something that you needed taken care of? And so that's how that began, just my own sort of fear. So I gave it to her and she loved it. We worked on it together. I had a charmed story because we went out to a lot of uh, publishing houses and a lot of them were interested. And so there was an auction and I interviewed um, Wendy Logia, who's my editor. And I knew right away when I started talking to her, I was like, oh, she's the one. But then I still had to talk to everyone else. So I wonder, did you always intend to write for a young adult audience? I didn't always intend that. I just ended up doing that. So with that first book, the main character, Maddie, was 
going to be 17, right? And then I didn't actually know anything about the business part of making books. Um, and so my agent said, oh, that's young adults. And I said, oh, okay. And, you know, to me it was, well, this is what I'm writing. And then when I chose that, that's when I started to realize that my voice is a natural fit anyway. Um, and so for writing The Sun is Also a Star, I just sort of stuck to young adults. I won't always, I will say, right? Okay. I mean, the nice thing about sort of having an agent and an editor who let you be, you know, I have sort of flexibility to choose where I want to be, given how I'm feeling as an artist. And so kind of looking into everything, everything in the book a little bit more, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between Maddie and Ollie. Was that always going to be kind of a romantic, physical relationship? So, I mean, I guess I'll just do a little bit of background. So Everything, Everything is the story of a 17-year-old girl who is um, ill and stuck in her house and has never left her house. And then one day, you know, a very cute boy moves next door and just sort of makes her curious because cute boys do that, Right. I think it was always romantic in my mind. I am a romantic goober. I love love. I, I mean, I will, I could talk about love all day. So it was always going to be romantic. And I think the thing that I love about writing romance is that is there is such a journey of self-discovery there. So you do fall in love with yourself a little bit, I think you fall in love with someone else, right? I mean, you do actually have to love yourself in order to love someone else and in order to, you know, sort of receive the love back. And so I really wanted to explore her sort of coming of age and, and starting to sort of map the own dimensions of her heart, right? So it was always going to be romantic for me. So I think this would be a perfect point in the event to do a little bit of a reading I'm going to read um, a very, very, very short section from Everything, Everything. The chapter is titled, Madam, I'm Adam. Sometimes I reread my favorite books from back to front. I start with the last chapter and read backward until I get to the beginning. When you read this way, characters go from hope to despair, from self-knowledge to doubt. In love stories, couples start out as lovers and end as strangers. Coming-of-age books become stories of losing your way. Your favorite characters come back to life. If my life were a book and you read it backward, nothing would change. Today is the same as yesterday. Tomorrow will be the same as today. In the book of Maddie, all the chapters are the same. Until Ollie. Before him, my life was a palindrome. The same forward and backward, like a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, or Madam, an Adam. But always like a random letter, the big bold X thrown in the middle of the word or phrase that ruins the sequence. And now my life doesn't make sense anymore. I almost wish I hadn't met him. How am I supposed to go back to my old life, my days stretching out before me with unending and brutal sameness? How am I supposed to go back to being the girl who reads? Not that I begrudge my life in books. All I, know from, all I know about the world, I've learned from them. But a description of a tree is not a tree. And a thousand paper kisses will never equal the feel of Ollie's lips against mine. Thank you, that was wonderful. The start of that talks about how different types of books end and they start. And everything, everything has 
a little bit of a feel of almost like a fairy tale throughout it. You've got kind of Madi who's locked away, I guess, at the beginning and then comes into her own and I guess finds herself. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Was that part of your intention? You know, you are maybe the third interviewer ever who said that to me. And to me, it's so obvious it's a fairy tale, but like no one ever sees that. And I think maybe you and like, um, I did an, an interview for National Public Radio. <laughs> um, and I think they noticed too, but, um, but it is a fairy tale, right? I mean, it's an absurd situation, right? The story of the book. Um, it's very heightened in the same ways that fairy tales are. And this, in the same ways that sci-fi and, and fairy tales work is that they take a situation, they heighten it to try to get at something else, right? And so what I'm trying to get at with everything, everything is what are the risks you're willing to take for love? I mean, that it's like a simple question put into the sort of heightened situation to try to get to an answer. You know, one of the things when I met my husband, I just, I knew very, very quickly that he was the one for me, right? And then as soon as we sort of started dating, I just started to be such a warrior, right? I would worry if he was late to something, I would worry he'd been hit by a truck, something terrible had happened. Like that's just the way my mind worked. And then we had our little girl and that worry just grows. My heart, you know, is outside of my body when, when it comes to her, right? She goes to school and I, and I worry. And so, you know, love is wonderful, but it also leaves you sort of very vulnerable, right? You know, and my question in the story is, is that vulnerability worth it? And what, what happens if you lose it? Like, what happens to you if you lose, like, the loves of your life? And what are the possibilities for recovery? Can you recover? Do you even want to? The way I told the story was I just made this sort of big situation so that I could really examine, like, a very personal question, which is, what happens if you lose the people you love the most? Both of your boots kind of deal with a lot of topics and themes that are kind of differences but it doesn't make a thing of it um so in everything everything there's a gay character but that's that isn't what the book turns into that's not what the book's about so I wondered if we could have a little bit of a conversation about that one of my projects is not to make difference the only thing a book is about Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean um you know I think there's this idea of the issue book where, so say the main character is gay and then the book is about sort of coming out and then dealing with the repercussions of coming out. And generally it's like a negative um, consequence, right? Like maybe the character is in a small town or the family disapproves or something. You know, that's a book that's sort of oriented around an issue. But you can also have a book where the main character is gay and they are gay and also they're going to save the world. They are the, the, the boy prince or, you know, the boy magician. And so, you know, part of my project is more on the, the sort of latter side, right? Because I think that issue books save lives, right? So I think that if you're gay and you're having a hard time coming out and you pick up a book where the character is gay and, and, is, and is also having a hard time coming out, but, you know, it's a happy ending, I think that book can save your life, like quite literally, right? I think you can read it and say, hold on, I can make it too because this character has made it like there is a light at the end of this tunnel. But I think the book where the character is gay and he's like the chosen one and the hero, 
um, and he's going to fall in love with the other cute boy and they're going to save the world together. I think that that saves your life in another kind of way, right? So I think it saves your life metaphysically. Um, and I think that's equally important, right? So I do think that you have to know that you can be the hero too, right? And your life isn't an issue. It's certainly not only an issue. I don't wake up every day thinking about, oh, the struggle. Like I can't, I cannot live like that. I obviously think about it, mm -hmm. right? But joy is the only thing I can claim. So, you know, you only get the one life. So yeah, <laughs> you have definitely. to live it well, yeah. Many thanks to Nicola Yoon and to Chair Andy Stewart. You can watch that event in full on our YouTube channel. And do consider purchasing one of Nicola's books from our website. That's bookshop.wigtownbookfestival.com. Nicola was talking about the importance of healthy relationships, and this is a theme which continues in the second of our edited highlights on this episode. Alistair McIntosh is a broadcaster, speaker and activist who is involved in a wide range of contemporary issues from land reform, globalisation and non-violence, to psychology, spirituality and ecology. Alistair is considered to be one of the world's leading environmental campaigners. He discussed his latest book, Riders on the Storm, with chair Stuart Kelly. So it's over to Stuart. Alistair is, according to the BBC and certainly in my opinion, one of the leading uh, environmental campaigners, but he links that to something deeper than just the environment. It's something much more to do with what it means to be human in this ever-changing world. So basically what happened with this book is that 12 years ago, I wrote a book on climate change that Berlin, the Edinburgh publisher, asked me to do called Helen High Water, Climate Change Hope and the Human Condition. And of course, back then, less was known about the science of climate change. And since then, we've had, you know, 12 years of basically inaction for the large part, although there have been some major technological developments um, like battery technology, solar panels, that, that kind of thing. And so in November of next year, virus permitting, which remains a big question, COP26, the conference of the parties, namely the heads of government of the world, will hopefully be descending on Glasgow for a huge international conference about what to do, the 26th conference, what to do about climate change. So with all that happening, Hugh Andrew, the managing director of Berlin, asked me if I would do an update of Helen Highwater. And I said, no, that wouldn't inspire me to just to update the science. I think there's a lot of new stuff that needs to be said. So that, that's why I wrote this, because you spoke at your introduction just now about bringing in the deeper dynamics of what climate change is about and how it affects on the survival of being, being human being, being the being of reality, the nature of the reality we're living in. So this, this book, because I always, Stuart, in my writing, what I always do is I try to take pressing issues of our time and I weave it in with digging where we stand in looking at you know, where any one of us in our lives is standing and what we can see just by looking around. And as one former prisoner in Berlin, he put it via a friend of mine, he said, when you're in jail, you learn to watch all points of the come to pass. Watch all points of the compass. 
watch all points of the come to pass of what is going on. And so I start off going back to my own home village on the Isle of Lewis, the village of Lurbost, where my father was the, my late father was a doctor in North Locks Parish. And I go back amongst the school friends that I grew up with, in the community I grew up with, taking with me and my wife, Varen, taking with us a group of village leaders from West Papua province, the Indonesian side of New Guinea. And they had come to study healthy land, healthy communities, but remove climate change in with it. And we start off walking along the shore and just noticing what is happening to the shoreline. So here we are. Here we are with the people from West Papua province in the Indonesian side of New Guinea. I used to work in the other side, the western side of Papua New Guinea for four years in the 1970s and 80s. So that's where my connection with that part of the world came from. And these Melanesian people, like you are mostly looking at here, have got a very strong sense of the spirituality of the land. So a lot of my work, Stuart, that I did, you know, on the Isle of Egg or with the Harris Super Quarry that I describe in Soil and Soul, as I pointed out in that book, I had actually been mentored in these things by Papua New Guineans. So you've got the wonderful circularity of insights from Indigenous people on the other side of the world coming back into Scotland and feeding into our thinking on Scottish land reform in the 1990s. We led a study tour to the Isles of Lewis and Harris, and we went round a number of the community trusts. And, you know, there's now some 500 of these land trusts in Scotland. Check out the website of Community Land Scotland, and you'll see what it's all about. And they control nearly 3% of Scotland's surface now. So this is a wonderful thing that Scotland can showcase when COP26 comes to Glasgow or however it's held at the end of next year. We can say, you know, here are people reconnecting in the land here in Scotland and all the renewable energy and affordable, well-insulating housing, the sheer sense of empowerment that comes out of it. And, uh, you know, the great thing being that we've learned not just through my work, but through many other people who've been working abroad also brought their ideas back into Scotland at that time and helped our culture to start shifting. And then since we were boys in the 1960s, global sea level as a result of global warming that has been happening over that time, has risen by about six inches. In fact, it's gone up by even more than that here because you've also got land substance. And if you look at that slide, you can see those long lines of the Fianagan, the lazy beds coming down to the shore, but the ends are spilling into the sea. And, you know, when we were boys, there would have been several metres before you hit the shoreline. But now that coast being eaten back not just because of the rise in sea levels, but also the increased storminess. And where I wanted to take them to was to these ruins. And we sat in these ruins with some of the younger women of the village. So there's um, Catherine Mary McLean with the dark hair and Evelyn Cool McLeod with the fair hair. And as we sat there, we cooked up shellfish that we had collected as we walked along. It was like two indigenous peoples coming together and making common cause. And we talked about the history of the place. And Evelyn said, it'll be a long time since anybody's had a feast in this house. But this was one of my granny's homes. And then Rusty went on to explain the wave of highland clearances in the 1820s. 
that it evicted most of the villages to the south of Loch Lobost. And we unpacked how, you know, here we were sitting in the ruins of a black house and that one of the descendants of a woman who emigrated from you know, her family having been pushed off the land in these waves of clearances, one of the descendants now lives in a white house. Evelyn's great-great-grandparents, whatever they were, were victims of the same wave of clearances that pushed Donald Trump's Hebridean ancestors off the land. And so I raise the question, what happens to a people when they're uprooted? What happens when you experience clearance and the inner psychological co collapse? And then you're left with nothing, so you become vulnerable to the blandishments of consumerism. You become a cog in the wheel because you've no longer got the ground on which you stand. And so the importance of community in recovering that. You do write a lot about groundedness that we're uh -huh. thrown into the world. And there's yeah. something quite inspiring about the granular nature of that, that a solution for Westry or Lewis is not the same as a solution for Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. It's probably not even the same solution for Dumfries and Galloway. So you just mm -hmm. talk a bit about that kind of spiritual yeah. sense of rootedness yeah. and why that's yeah. important. Well, it's just digging where we stand issue. You know, that old song, all I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. We need what keeps us going in life. We need our sustenance, like this very nice packet of shortbread made by um, somebody called Claire, sent to me by the Wigton Book Festival with a packet of coffee. You know, we, we need our sustenance. Thank you, Claire, and the Book Festival. We need that kind of stuff. We also need right relationships. Now, we know that in our relationships, in our love relationships, in our family and community relationships, that that means doing our internal work. You, you just can't go storming into a relationship and expect it to take shape around you. If we are going to have human relationships, if we're going to experience love in ways that can be lasting, we have to work on ourselves and preferably in community with others who are also deepening themselves. I call that psychological groundness, even spiritual groundedness, because I think ultimately it's about asking what we are as human beings. Are we just atomized individuals or are we profoundly interconnected at some level and love is what holds all of this together? It's equally true with our environment, with the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the water that we drink. We need to understand where these things are coming from. You know, those two things, our groundedness in the physical and biological environment and our groundedness in the relational environment with other human beings and with other life species. And I would add with the divine, but, you know, not everybody would see that as part of their worldview. These are what I mean by groundedness. You know, Doogie McLean has that song on solid ground about standing on solid ground. And I think for each of us, we need to do that. And yes, it will be different in Papua than in Dumfries and Galloway. Although what we find in these exchanges that we make is that the similarities can be surprisingly similar. Uh, a more striking contrast would be with Glasgow. You know, I'm, I'm here and um, I'm speaking to you here from Govan. You know, how do you do it here? And the reason that I... Um, well, in fact, was invited to live here by people in the local community some 16 years ago when Varen and I 
moved to here within the parish boundary of Govan, what does it say to urban people? What does it say to people whose only window in nature has maybe been a high a television up a high-rise flat and who, you know, just don't have experience of that groundedness out there? So, you know, in the Galgale Trust here, uh, which I am one of the founding directors of, started by my colleagues Jahan and Colin McLeod, who uh, Jahan now widowed, living just up the road. Um, what we're doing is we're building wooden boats and then getting people out onto the Clyde, getting them out onto the sea, getting people who would not otherwise have that experience the opportunity to be grounded, not just in the nature that is Scotland and the nature of Scotland. And, you know, it, it, it can be mind-blowing for people even to get out in a small boat on the Clyde here in Glasgow and you see the swans and, you know, I've seen a salmon leap just outside the Brayhead shopping centre. And you realise we're living in the midst of that. And it blows people's minds. I've, I think of one wee lassie. She was in tears the day we went up to Loch Lomond. And she said, you know, all my life I've lived in Glasgow and I never thought I would see the bonny, bonny banks. Bring them into relationship with each other. It, it, it brings them out of that atomization and the madness of that atomization, the loneliness of that atomization, the way it eats at your mind, whether you are rich or poor, and especially damaging if you're rich, and it brings you into relationship. When you're rowing a boat, you've got to pull together. Whew, that's groundedness. Question from Antonia. In reference to complexity in the systems, how much attention do you pay to both local contributing environmental factors and long-term observations. The, the um, specific intent of a question is about the, um, you know, the the local things of you know you ask people or until recently because they've cleaned it up a lot now you'd ask people what is the most pressing environmental um, problem in your community and you know what they would say they would say dog shit on the pavements. Well, in, in the past 20 years, there's been a lot of change there. But when I used to do surveys like that with my students, that would be the main thing they would come back for. Uh, not having a park for children to play in or not having good access or safe access, something like that. So we've got to link these things. And Stuart, that is where I put so much emphasis. And I love speaking to local community groups like people doing allotments, people doing woodland projects, many of these land reform projects, you know, the 500 or so land trusts in Scotland are very small. Some of them are tens of thousands of acres, but some of them are very small indeed. And it's about local people doing local things. Think, think global, have the big picture in your mind but act local. And what we find is that when people are able to get their hands into the soil and maybe learn to grow things and be in relationship with one another, they then start widening out from that soil in which they are digging into the whole earth. You know, the, the next thing they'll be asking is, is my chocolate fair trade and that kind of stuff? And uh, you know, people will say, oh, that's only for the rich. But I actually find that people who are hard pressed, whether in rural or urban situations, they get the importance of fair trade very quickly because they're at the receiving end of working in rubbish industries that don't treat people well. So this is about, you know, this is why it's about not just climate change, but the survival of being. It's about the survival of that which gives us human being. 
the survival of that which makes us human beings, the survival of that which can take what is broken or degenerated in our human beingness and raise it forward into the future. Many thanks to Alistair McIntosh for his inspiring words and, of course, to Stuart Kelly. Riders on the Storm is available from the Wigtown Book Festival website and you can catch the event in its entirety, complete with slides, over on our YouTube channel. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks to you for listening. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye for now.